really want to know the, the, the price. It'll cost you Hey, well, welcome, everybody. It's great to have you all here with us. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible today, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come hook you up with a Bible. You'll find Matthew 12 in our Bibles on page 817. While our ushers are passing out Bibles, let me introduce myself. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you're a first, second, third-time guest with us, welcome. We love that you are here with us. We would love to see you in the Welcome Center for the meet and greet afterwards. Swing by. We got some donuts and, and a free gift over there for you. We'd love to tell you just more about who we are as a church. Last week, Pastor Jeremy kicked off a brand new series that we're going to be in for the next six weeks or so called All In. And what we wanted to do with this series is challenge ourselves a little bit. Our word for 2018 is more. We want to have more of Jesus in our lives and less of us. And what we wanted to do with this series is challenge ourselves to go, hey, are we all in in, in all these different facets of life? All of these different aspects, areas of life, are we all in for Jesus? Last week, Jeremy gave just a killer, wonderful sermon on relationships. What does it look like to be all in with our relationships? If you missed that sermon, go online, check it out sheltercovelive.com, just a very timely sermon. Today, we're going to speak about our speaking. We're going to talk about talking. We want to be all in with our speech. Now, before we get going with today's sermon, there's a couple of disclaimers I need to make right up at the front of this sermon. I need to let you know a couple of things that I'm not going to try and do today. I am not going to try and give you a list of words that are okay to say and a list of words that are not okay to say. I'm not going to give you like a bunch of Christian substitute cuss words that you can say. <laughs> I'm not going to stand up here and just drill down into like lying or gossiping or cussing. I'm not going to focus and, and spend all my time on one speech pattern in particular. I'm also not going to stand up here today and give you like some psychological self-help tricks to make it seem like you have a rein and grasp on your speech when the truth is it's just a facade. When the truth is that facade will break very easily if you're under any kind of stress or unexpected event. I think we all see that facade break when we get cut off in traffic, right? The self-control we thought we had breaks pretty quickly. No, what I want to do in return is treat speech the way the Bible treats speech. The way the Bible treats speech, it, it treats it as if it's almost a symptom of something else. It's like a secondary issue. The Bible's far more concerned with something that's happening on a deeper level. And what I want to do now is turn our attention to that deeper level. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus points this out spectacularly. It's eloquent and beautiful and simple what Jesus says. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We'll pick it up here in Matthew 12, verses 33 and 34. Here's how it reads. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? Now watch this next line. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to pray for my friends here, and I want to pray for myself. God, I pray that you'd give my friends here uh, wisdom and insight and revelation into who you are, God. I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would enlighten their hearts and minds, that they might truly see and understand and know what we're going to look at today, that they might experience it, they might walk in it. I pray for that, God. I pray that you would help me now, help me, God, to communicate and clearly say what I need to say. Spirit, you guide, you lead, you speak. In the best way, God, I know how I want to just turn over control of this time now to you. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seventh grade, I went to youth group one Tuesday night, and the pastor, uh, our youth pastor named Craig Hamilton, a man that had far more energy than any human ever should, he, he gave up and, and gave this sermon on cussing. And the whole gist of his sermon was this. Um, as students, as junior high students, we could reflect and model who Jesus is on our campus if we didn't cuss. We could be lights on our campus if our speech was wholesome and, and holy. And, and that's a yes and amen to that sermon. That's a, a good sermon. After that sermon, myself and two of my friends, Stephen Hollingsworth and Nick Albrecht, we huddled up because we, kind of, we felt kind of convicted because our speech wasn't always the best at school. In fact, most of the time, it wasn't very good at school. And we felt challenged by this, so we kind of were like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? We got to figure out how we're going to stop cussing. We got to figure this out. We pooled together our 12-year-old brains, and we came up with this fantastic plan. No way this plan could ever fail. Here was the plan. If we hear one of the others cussing, we have carte blanche, full permission to pop him in the shoulder. That was the plan. It was like a way of self-disciplining, a way of correcting. If we hear you cussing, we're going to punch you in the shoulder. So that was Tuesday night. We come up with a plan Thursday, two days later. I'm walking from band class to PE with Stephen, with my buddy Stephen Hollingsworth. We're walking along. Stephen starts rapping the intro to Nothing But a G-Thang by Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. And I should say he was trying to rap this. He's wider than I am, and it was pretty awkward and glorious all at the same time. He, he starts rapping the song, and I know the lyrics that are coming. Um, I know that, that pretty soon into the song, there's some salty language. And so a small part of me was like, hey, you should say something. You should stop your brother from walking into temptation. And then a far bigger part of me was like, let him cuss so you can punch him in the shoulder. <laughs> and of course, that's what I listened to. And he walked right into the cuss words, just blurted it right out. And, and y'all, I went like full Mortal Kombat. I was like, bam And I just nailed him in the shoulder. And his face, it looked like I betrayed his friendship because he turned around and looked at me and was like, what the beef did you do that for? That beefing hurt, man. And I was like, don't you remember what we said on Tuesday night? You just cussed a bunch. He was like, ah, I didn't think you guys were effing serious. I didn't think you were serious about this. And I was like, okay, this system is not working. This system is A, not helping, and B, it's probably making us cuss far more than we would have normally. James, the little brother of Jesus, says in his epistle, 
Man has tamed all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the creatures of the sea, but nobody has tamed the tongue. You know what he says next? The tongue is a restless evil. (laughs) It doesn't sleep. What I want to try and do today is show us some biblical principles that are going to help us get a grip on our speech. Show us some biblical principles that if we can understand and apply, it will help us in the journey to reigning in our speech. Let me put it differently. It'll help us to being all in with our speech for Jesus Christ. First principle to understand and apply in our notes says this. Our words are a reflection of our heart. Our words are a reflection of our heart. Jesus just said this masterfully. He says, out of what? The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your speech is indicative of something that's happening down in the heart. Your speech is diagnostic of what's happening down in the soul. You want to know the condition of your heart? How do you speak? You see, the Bible doesn't really treat speech as the problem. Speech is a symptom of something deeper. So you don't really have a cussing problem. You don't have a lying problem. You don't have a gossip problem. You've got a jacked up heart. That's the problem. And Jesus isn't the only one to speak like this. He isn't the only one to say this. In fact, some thousand years before Jesus showed up onto the scene, a very, very wise king named Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs chapter 4. In Proverbs 4, he says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Some of your translations say, Guard your heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, here's what he's doing. Solomon's painting a word picture of sorts. He's painting this picture of like a, a wellspring of water, or, or maybe a creek of water, if you want to think, it like, think of it like that. This creek of water that's flowing down into a lake. Now, he's saying, if that source is clean, the lake is going to be clean, Right? The lake might get dirty here and there, and you can just pull those things out. But if the, if the source is clean, everything else is going to be clean. On the flip side, if the source is dirty, no matter how much you try and clean up that lake, it's going to constantly be dirty because the source has got plastic bags and tires and cigarette butts and all kinds of trash that's flowing down into it, right? Now watch what Solomon says next. He could have focused on any aspect of life, money, work, Religion, faith, he could have focused on any of these things, but what he says next is this, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. It's almost like Solomon saying, you want to know where your heart's at, watch what you're saying. Keep devious talk far from you. Now, if you're anything like me, you're sitting there going, yeah, but what classifies as devious talk? What's crooked speech? I'm going to get there in a little bit. At the end of our time together, I will try to flesh that out a little bit more. So just hold on to that question for now. Our words are just a reflection of our heart. Now, if you're tracking with me, you should be going, okay, well, then how do we change our hearts? Like, if if we need to change our speech, our hearts have to be different. How do we make our hearts different? I love it when you ask me questions I'm ready to answer. Second question in your notes, second principle, rather, in your notes says this. Our hearts change by a miraculous work of God. Our hearts are renewed. Our hearts are changed. They're transformed by a spectacular, miraculous, off-the-charts work of God. For some of you, 
that's wonderful news. For others of you, that's a tough pill to swallow. If you tend to be kind of type A, this is a tough pill to swallow. Because you handle everything. You work hard. You schedule. Your calendar is your best friend. You know how to get things done. You know how to make things happen. You're a mover. You're a shaker. God bless you. The world needs you. However, when it comes to something like this, when you hear me saying, God is the one that has to change your heart, you might be tempted to feel in your soul something that goes like this, an inner dialogue that goes like this. I don't need his help. I can do everything else on my own. Why do I need some sky God to help me? I can fix this. I mean, I can fix everything else in life. Why do I need his help here? I'm smart enough. I work hard enough. I'm capable enough. If that's, if that's similar to some kind of inner dialogue you're having, then I just want to lay before you something that was told to me a couple of years ago. I've said it up here before, and I'll say it again. A man told me one time, Chad, if you could fix all the things that you hate about yourself, why haven't you fixed them yet? Like, if you had the capacity to change the things that you hate about yourself, why do you keep doing them? And I gave him some, like, freshman college answer. Well, it's a process of self-discovery and exploration. (laughs) And he looked at me with the most gentle bluntness I've ever heard and said, no, it's not. No, it's not. You have a wicked heart. Takes one to know one. I got one, too. Our hearts are deceitful above all else, and they're desperately wicked. We need outside help. I mean, listen, let's just think about it. If we could fix ourselves, why haven't we fixed ourselves? We're all well aware of all the problems going on in the world right now. Have you ever studied history? History is just a consecutive cycle, nothing but cycle after cycle after cycle of mankind oppressing one another, of mankind being horrible to one another. If we learn anything from history, it's that we don't learn from history. Church, we can't fix ourselves. If we could, we would have. We need outside help. Let me tell you how this outside help works. In your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. If you're using one of our Bibles, you'll find Titus 3 on page 998. Titus is going to be to the right of the Gospel of Matthew. It'll be right uh, right after the Timothys, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Titus chapter 3 has one of the most profound, beautiful awesome gospel passages I know of in in the entire Bible. Um, And I want you to see this. Paul, writing this letter to Titus, is going to spell out so clearly how this transformation takes place. Here's how our heart changes. Verse 3 starts like this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So there's a real chipper, cheery verse for you. You know what that verse just said? Everybody and their mom stinks. They're terrible. That's what that verse just said. All of us. And it spells out some special indictments. We were foolish. We thought we were smart, but the truth was we were fools. We traded the truth of God in for a lie. We were disobedient. We saw the good and right, pleasing ways of God, 
pushed them to the side for our own destructive, hurtful ways. We were led astray. We bought in hook, line, and sinker to the deception and the lies of our enemy. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Let me say just a word on this. Passions and pleasures were never meant by God to be a stumbling block. That was never ever meant to be a temptation and a stumbling block. Originally, God designed the passions and pleasures that he has wired into creation to stir worship in our heart for him. That was what he originally intended it for. And where we get this wrong is that we end up just worshiping the passion or the pleasure instead of the God that gave that passion or pleasure to us. So like, let's take food and drink, for example. A wonderful gift given to us by God. Good food, good drink given to us by the Lord. The idea, the original idea was that we would eat, drink, give glory to God and thank him for this wonderful gift. And that would stir worship in our hearts for him. But where we blow it is we just worship the food and the drink. Our worship terminates too short. It should go up higher. So we worship the food and drink. We become gluttons. We become drunkards. Sex, we do this with sex all the time. Sex was designed to be expressed between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage, and it would stir worship in their hearts. These two lovers would glorify God and praise him for this spectacular gift. But instead, we just worship the physical sensations and seek after that to our own destruction. I always want to lay this before us. God is not against our joy. He's not against our freedom. He's not against our fulfillment. He's just against the stupid ways we try to find it. We were enslaved to these passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. The Bible just called us all haters. We're just a bunch of haters. And all you have to do to see this in real life, in real living color, jump onto YouTube and read some comments. Jump onto social media and see how people speak to each other. We're haters. This would be horribly depressing if this text ended here, but it continues. Verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So, Jesus, looking down upon this train wreck that we've brought upon to ourselves, this absolute desolation we've brought onto ourselves, had every right to judge, had every right to condemn and smite, rather looks down with love and compassion and kindness and enacts, he enables and starts this plan of redemption not through a third party, not through some angel, not from a distance, but he himself enters into our brokenness. He himself enters into our sinfulness and becomes one of us. The God of everything leaves the glory and the majesty of heaven for the poverty and the ghetto of earth. And watch what verse five says. He saved us. He saved us. I mean this with no disrespect. I know you're awesome. Jesus does not need your help in saving you. He saves you. He saves me. We are passive in this. We do not contribute to our salvation by moral acts. 
He is the active agent in rescuing. He accomplishes this. He doesn't save us 80% of the way, and then we've got to fill in the rest. He is the one that rescues. And if you don't take my word for it, watch what it says next. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Praise God for that verse. He saved us because our God delights in mercy. He enjoys mercy. He gets a kick out of it. He loves rescuing what seems unrescuable. He loves showing grace to people that don't deserve it. This is the MO of our God. The middle of verse five says this. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk about that in just a little bit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being, what, justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How does this miraculous work happen? Next point in your notes, justification. It starts with justification. We saw that word justified in verse six, right? What exactly is justification? Justification is both a legal term and it's a theological term. And what justification means is the judge has banged the gavel and declared, you are not guilty. You are innocent, free of all charge. So in a theological sense, when we use this word justification, what we're saying is that Jesus Christ, the God of everything, the highest court, the highest authority, the highest power, there's no appeals above him. There's no other authority that supersedes him. The highest judge in the highest land has himself paid our penalty. And he now bangs the gavel and says, Chad, Garrett, Blackman, you are no longer guilty. You are justified, you're innocent. Pastor Jeremy always says this, justified means just as if I never sinned. Now this is difficult, why? Because I know I'm guilty. How could he forgive me? How could he just sweep this under the rug? Well, he hasn't swept it under the rug. What he accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross is the full expunging. He dumped out all of his wrath against me and against all those who believe for our treason, for our rebellion. He dumped all of that out onto Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus has served our sentence and you have siblings in here? Did you ever get in trouble for something your brother or sister did? Right? This is similar, except Jesus joyfully went to the cross on our behalf. Jesus joyfully absorbed the wrath of God for us. This means all of our condemnation is gone. All of our penalty is gone. All of our punishment is gone. Look right at me. There's no more punishment for those in Jesus Christ. There's none, it's gone. There'll be discipline, but that's very different than punishment. That's very different than wrath. It's all gone. And in place of that, God has secondly given us his righteousness. We've been credited the righteousness of Jesus himself. We have a foreign righteousness, not of our own, not accomplished by good works, but credited to us by Jesus. So once again, I know you're awesome, but Jesus's righteousness is way better than your own. And thirdly, he has given to us his spirit. His spirit lives within us. 
You can always tell somebody understands justification by asking them this question. If you were to die and be before the Father and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Because if their answer is something like, well, I went to church, well, I tried to be a good person, well, I tried to do more good than bad, well, I gave money, I went on a mission trip, None of those are going to cut it. Look at me. This answer is not going to cut it too. Well, I believed in Jesus. There's millions of people that believe in Jesus, and they believe in an idolatrous false Jesus. The demons even believe in Jesus, and they tremble. What do you believe about Jesus? Because the only answer that's going to satisfy the Father is Christ has paid my penalty in full. He has given me his righteousness. I have none of my own to bring before you. And the Spirit has sealed me for redemption. On those three merits, I have full access into heaven. Not because I earned it, but because you delight in being merciful. This is justification. And the heart change starts here. Starts here. Now, whenever you lean real heavy on justification, there's always a look that comes over some people's faces in the crowds. And it tends to be people that have been in church for a long time. They start to get nervous. They start to get worried. Because what's going on in their heart is something like this. Uh, Chad, excuse me, um, what about obedience? Because you're making it seem like we don't have to do anything to be cool with God. So where does obedience fit into this? I've been in church long enough to know obedience is important. Rest your souls, you type A little angel faces. I will tell you soon where obedience fits into the picture, okay? It's the next point in your notes. Sanctification. Next point in your notes says sanctification. What is sanctification? It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. Thinking more like Jesus, feeling more like Jesus, living more like Jesus. You could say it's maturing, it's growing. This is what sanctification means. How does it happen? Well, let's look at what the Bible says here. Middle of verse five. It says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When the man or woman of Christ comes to faith, believes in Jesus, he's paid my penalty, he's given me his righteousness, he's sealed me with his spirit, this means the spirit of God is now living within us. God Almighty indwells the soul of the believer and starts to renew and rework. Let me say it like this. I heard a pastor describe it, and I thought this was brilliant. It's like God downloads brand new software onto an old computer. It's like he downloads Windows 10 onto an old dial-up. Any of you remember this sound? Remember this terrible, awful, borderline demonic sound that used to come through our computers? If you're born before like 94, you don't remember this sound. I remember my dad used to call me on the way home because he wanted to check his email, so he'd be like, fire up the computer, because it took like 15 minutes just to get to your email. It's like God has taken this old computer that only knew dial-up, and here's what he's going to do. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to hook up to Wi-Fi. I'm going to teach this old computer that only knows how to print on those, remember those awful printers that like took nine hours to just like print one page? I'm going to teach that computer how to print on a laser jet. 
I've got a new way of living for you. It's brand new. I'm going to renew. I'm going to regenerate you. I'm going to show you how to live like you're really meant to live. And this is where obedience comes into play. God is going to teach us through his spirit that obedience is the pathway to joy. Do you hear me? We don't think like that. We think obedience is trying to stifle our joy. We think God is trying to restrict our joy. He's not trying to restrict our joy by calling us into obedience. God's going, hey, I'm smarter than you. I know how life works. There's life this way. You keep getting hammered drunk. I didn't design alcohol like that. Drink with self-control and with temperance. Drink with a grateful heart unto God. That's where life is. Trust me, your liver, your head, your reputation will thank me in the morning. (laughs) You keep looking for self-validation through all of these sexual partners. That's not what I designed sex for. I know how it works better than you. I made it. I designed it. I know how this works. Sex works wonderfully in the context of a man and a woman married together, committed in covenantal relationship. It flourishes there. It'll stir worship in your heart for God. Come do it my way. Come do it this way. There's life over here. On and on and on. With money, we could do this. You keep hoarding and trying to protect all this money. It's killing you. You're enslaving yourself more and more to money. Be generous with it. It'll free you. It'll liberate you. Once again, Jesus is not against our joy. He's for it. And sanctification is the process of us learning. Obedience leads to joy. Some of us learn this quick. Some of you will be like me, and it takes a long time. God's going to have to smack you over the head a couple times. This is where we learn, we grow, we're disciplined, we are sanctified, we become more like him. Justification happens in an instance, in an instant, sanctification will take the rest of your life. Justification will cost you nothing, sanctification will cost you everything, and it'll be totally worth it. God will show you what the Bible says is life that's really life. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to the third principle that we can apply and understand here. Our changed hearts will demonstrate fruit. I don't mean like we're going to sprout apples. Like what I mean is that we're going to demonstrate godly characteristics. If our hearts are changed, they should play out in real time. We should start to see them in life. Jesus even said that. Jesus said, make the tree good and its fruit will be good. Earlier on, we looked at that proverb, Proverb chapter four, it said crooked speech and devious talk. And I said, some of you might be wondering, what is crooked speech, what is devious talk? I wanna try to flesh that out a little bit more now with some verses from the Proverbs. We're gonna look at a bunch of Proverbs up on the screen, and what I wanna show you is the compare and contrast between unsanctified speech and sanctified speech. All right, we're gonna throw a couple of these up on the screens here. First of all, unsanctified speech tends to be many. There's, a, there's many words that are thrown in there. Sanctified speech tends to have few words. It tends to be uh, far more inclined to listening. Here's what Proverbs 10 says. And there's space on the back of your notes, too, if you want to write these down. Uh, we're going to go through them quick, so you might just want to write the address down instead of the whole thing. Proverbs 10:19. when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. 
Prudent just means wise. Proverbs 17 says this. I love this verse. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. (laughs) So the Bible is like, hey, if you're kind of dumb, just keep your mouth shut, and people will think you're smart. (laughs) I love that. Finally, Ecclesiastes 10 says this. A fool multiplies words. Very simple, but very straightforward. Moving on next here. Unsanctified words are untrustworthy. You can't trust them. Sanctified speech habits, they tend to be trustworthy. If people are sanctified, they tend to be trustworthy with their words. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Proverbs 20 will read almost the same way. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Can people trust you? Like, are you a trusted confidant? Or if somebody goes to you with sensitive information, is the whole neighborhood going to find out about it? Moving on. Unsanctified speech habits tend to be emotional, while sanctified speech tends to be calm. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 17 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. I like that. A cool spirit. Unsanctified speech tends to be proud. Sanctified speech tends to be humble. Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. When you speak with people, are you all about making yourself look good? If so, that is a big sign of some unsanctified speech habits. Finally, unsanctified speech steals life while sanctified speech gives life. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12 says this, I'm sorry, Proverbs 15, uh, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And finally, Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do your words give life or do they steal life? Parents, please hear me. I say this as a parent, our words will either build and encourage and speak life into the young souls that we're around, or they will devastate those poor, tender little hearts. Do your words give life or do they steal it away? Do you use your words to build up or do you use your tongue to cut people down? I want to end our time with two questions. First one says this, what sanctified speech habit do you need to practice this week? Do you need to be more calm in your speech? Do you need to practice listening more? Do you need to be more humble in your speech? Once again, God's not calling us to this for salvation, but he's calling us to this that we might find joy that our relationships might be better, that all aspects of life might be healthier, better? Do you need to practice giving life instead of ripping it away with your words? Maybe you're here today and you're not even sure where you stand with God. Then I want to ask you this question. Are you justified? This next question in your notes, are you justified?
what we're going to do now is close our time in prayer, and we're going to have some people come up and get baptized. And if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, then I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And we're going to do that in prayer right now. Would you join me as we close our time in prayer? Father, thank you for, thank you for Jesus and what he's accomplished. Thank you for justification. Thank you, Spirit, that you've put this new hard, this new software in us. You're teaching us a new way of life, a way of life that's better, life that's truly life. And so I want to pray for those that know you, God. I want to pray that you would challenge them and stretch them and push them, God, to, to speak in a way that honors you, speak in a way that glorifies you. And I want to pray now, Lord, for those that are here that aren't sure where they stand with you. Would sit in this very seat and go, I don't know what to say before God. I don't know if I've got any kind of assurance or confidence before God. And if that's where you are, then, then I want to give you the opportunity to respond. And here's how you respond. It's got to be, it's got to come from a place of sincerity. Like your heart, your mind has to be sincere. It can't just be a mechanical repetition of a prayer. You've got to really sincerely own this. And if you're here today going, man, I need to get right with Jesus, then, then it starts with just a simple heartfelt prayer like this. Jesus, please forgive me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, justify me. I, I need you now. I don't know what this all means to be a Christian. I'm still a little bit gunshot. I don't even know for sure, God, but I just know enough to know I need to be forgiven. Please forgive me. If that's been your prayer today, then I'm going to ask you to do something bold and courageous. I want you to know this is a safe place to do it. I'm going to ask that you would raise your hand right now before you and before God to say, this has been my prayer today. If you've asked the Lord for forgiveness, ask the Lord to justify you, would you just raise your hand up in the air right now to make it real? Yeah, I see you guys over here. I see you back there. I see you over there. Yeah, all you guys up here on the sides in the front. It's awesome. Yeah, back there, I see you guys. I see you guys. It's cool. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much, God, for these men, these women, these children, making these steps to trust you, to walk with you. Bless them, guide them, be with them all their days. I pray this in your wonderful name.